return the scripture we read just a few moments ago with Tyler from John chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been, we're in a study in the entire gospel of John. And when you think of chapter 6, you must think of trying to tell someone about the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans, describing the power, the depth, the fish, describing the power of it. Um, That's hard to do. You could literally, I I told uh, Terry, this week, Tyler and I talked about it. Uh, I could easily preach, easily, um, 20 sermons from John chapter 6. And I would still not have exegeted. I would not have pulled out everything that is there. It's just tremendous depth to this chapter. We've been there two weeks. uh, And I know some of you, regardless of what I say about how wonderful it is, you're sitting there, I hope John does not preach 20 messages from John 6. (laughs) I'm not going to. I don't plan on it. It may change. But uh, we'll be here for a couple of more weeks. But I think you'll see something of what I mean this morning. Before we come to God's word and listen to him, Let's pray together. Our Father, we can never bow and pray as your priests, and we are your priests. We're not just your prophets taking God's word, taking your word out into the world weekly in Fayette County as salt and light, but our Father, You've also called us to be priests, to come before you, bring the world around us in prayer, serving as priests. And you've called all of us. It's not that the ministers are priests or the church leaders are priests. It's all of us are. We're a part of your holy priesthood. And so we can never come before you as your priest, a congregation of your priests, without thanking you for how you've answered our prayers, Father how you've brought healing, physical healing to people, how you've brought spiritual healing, how you've healed marriages, how you've healed relationships between children and parents. Oh, Father, we could just spend the rest of the day in Thanksgiving naming the individual ways that you have blessed us as you've answered our prayers. And so we come this morning again as your priest and we pray for Margie Reagan. Oh, Father, you know what she needs more than we do. We pray that you would meet those needs, bring healing to her. We pray for Sonia Meyer this morning who 
And life at this moment is in danger, great danger. We thank you for, Father, this the child that has been born. But we pray that you would preserve Sonia's life. Father, in your great mercy, bring healing to her. Our Father, we pray for the RYM conference this week, the Junior High Conference, and how you have blessed this church over the years through these conferences. Father, you've changed our youth. You've changed the entire church through these conferences, and we thank you. And as always, we pray for their safety. Take them there safely. Bring them back safely. But it will be all for naught, Father, unless you teach them. Oh, Father. Speak to them. Speak to the very core of their being in this conference. Bless the speakers. Fill them with your spirit. Bless this time that it will be rich for the students of Christ Presbyterian. Our Father, as we think together about the General Assembly this week of the Presbyterian Church in America, this evangelical reformed denomination that has been so powerful, and spread across this nation so quickly. Oh, Father, bless our deliberation this week. We began, Father, 50 years ago, wanting to be a church that brought your word faithfully in power to the world. We pray that we will not get away from that calling, that in this assembly, Father, we will dedicate ourselves anew to bringing your word, not changing your word, not making it more palpable for the world, but Father, bringing your word in the power of your spirit to this world. So bless us this week, Father. And now as we open your word, we know that John Sartell cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. He doesn't have that ability, and no man who stands behind this desk has that ability. So we once more just look to you as our Father. We're children. We began with a children's hymn this morning, Father, and we're your children. And we're before you right now asking you to speak to us, Father. Speak to us. Change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. Our Father, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Do you have a pantry for your soul? I asked someone yesterday on the phone, I said, do you think most people in the congregation will know what a pantry is? And he said, you know, you might ought to cover that. Uh, well, we will at the end. We're not going to mention the pantry again until we get to the end. But you'll understand. Do you have a pantry for your soul? Jesus, we've got to set this in context. We... Uh, took last week off from John as Tyler preached. And so I want to jog our minds back into gear in the sixth chapter. Jesus had just fed over 5,000 people in a wilderness area with 
five loaves and two fish. There were 12 basketfuls left over. He was copying a miracle that his father had done. Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? As for 40 years they labored through that wilderness, they would not have made it through the wilderness without the manna that God gave them every morning. It fell from heaven, fell out of the sky. God gave it to them. Well, Jesus was copying that miracle. When he fed in this wilderness area over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He was obviously claiming deity. He was saying, I am doing what my father did for Israel, doing it all over again. The miracle is pointing to my true identity. I'm doing only what God could do. The disciples and the crowd wanted to make him king right there. Not because they got what the miracle signified, that he was God. They wanted to make him king because he could feed the nation. Imagine if you had a king who could take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000. He could feed the whole nation. He would be able to, the Messiah king would be able to meet Israel's physical needs. When Jesus saw what they wanted to do, he quickly got his disciples. The disciples had wanted to do the same thing. He quickly got his disciples away from the crowd, get in the boat, and go to the other side of the lake. Then he went back and dismissed the crowd and went off on the mountain to pray. Then we, we saw that that evening, Jesus goes to his disciples as they're laboring to cross the Lake of Galilee in the midst of a huge storm. And Jesus goes to his disciples in the middle of the storm. High winds, white capping waves, and there is Jesus striding across those waves, across the water. And we saw that he had a message for his disciples. He said, you didn't get what the loaves and fish were about. I'm the God of heaven and earth. I'm the Lord of the waves. I'm the Lord of the storm. Matthew tells us that evening that disciples did something they had never done. Jesus got in the boat and they worshipped him on the spot. Earlier they had been in a storm and he had stopped the storm some, some months before that. And they had simply asked each other, who is this that the wind and the waves obeyed him? This time they knew who he was and they bowed and worshipped him. Have you ever stood before another human being, a person that you know in your daily life and bowed down and worshipped that person? That's what they did. Now in this ongoing story, John switches our attention back to the crowd in the passage that we read this morning. And I'm so glad he included the crowd actually coming across the lake and went into detail. He could have left that out. He could have said when the crowd found Jesus, but he didn't do that. He took a moment to write about it. Look what he says in verse 22 on your scripture sheet. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there in that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Now the crowd saw this. 
The next day, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, go back. They had seen the disciples leave that evening. There was only one boat. It's very clear. There was only one boat on the shore. The disciples got in that boat. There wasn't another. And they're left without any boats. And Jesus goes in the opposite direction off on the mountain. Other boats the next morning came over from Tiberias. There's a lot of commercial stuff going on. They hired those boats to get back across the lake. What was the first thing they said to Jesus when they got across? What was the very first thing? Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get here? They were saying, teacher, how did you get across the lake? Don't you wish Jesus had answered that question? He did. He just went on with a statement. Don't you wish he would have said, well, I walked across the lake in the middle of the storm. That would have been so cool to be able to say that. He did. What comes next is one of the great messages by Christ in the Gospels. It's the centerpiece of this passage. In chapter 6, everything that comes before this, the miracles, everything is about this verse. And everything that comes after it is about this verse. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus obviously had been introducing, had intended to introduce this subject when he fed the 5,000. He was saying, I fed you with physical bread, but I myself am the bread of life. As we look at this passage, there's so much as I said, there's a hundred points we could have. This morning, I want to talk about three. One, I want us to look at this passage and understand that physical food is God-given, and is a good necessity to physical life. Look at John 6, 5 on your scripture sheet. This is when the crowd was coming on that day that he fed them, when they were coming into the wilderness. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now this was unusual. Think about all the times Jesus had met with the crowd the Sermon on the Mount, all this, he didn't start, he, he, he didn't say to his disciples, where are we going to find food to eat? But he did it this time. He did it purposely. And think about this now. The very person who is who will speak to them so passionately about spiritual food is the one who fed them the physical dinner of the loaves and fish. Go back to the Old Testament. Who fed Israel? In the wilderness, who fed them? God did. And Jesus makes a point of that fact. Look at verse 32. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, who gave Israel bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. It was not Moses who did that. It wasn't man that did that. God did it. God cared about Israel's physical well-being. 
He just didn't say, well, I've given them an altar to save their souls. That's all they need. He looked after them. We sang about it in our hymn this morning, how he physically provides for us. That's no small thing. Now, why am I saying this? There is a proclivity. I've seen it all my life. There's a proclivity, especially in conservative Bible-believing churches, to depreciate the physical blessings that God has given mankind, to almost pretend like they're necessary evil. When John was writing this, this, this matter, when John was writing this, there was a group inside the church called Gnostics. They, 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 they were usually uh, in, in nationality, they came from Greece. They were Greek Gnostics. And they regarded, in their philosophy, they regarded everything physical as being evil. Maybe a necessary evil, but evil because it was physical. It was only the spiritual that was high and holy. And they almost counted the physical as it was just nothing. That type of Christianity will look at starving people and say, even though they're starving physically, and say, well, the real problem is that they need Jesus. It's far more important to give them Jesus than give them food. That's not what we see in this passage. We see Jesus providing for the crowd that's there, providing for dinner for them as they're in a wilderness remote area. It wasn't this attitude, their souls knew saving, not their bodies. It was God who made us body and soul. He did not create just souls in the garden. He made us body and soul. It was God who made, we talked about this several weeks ago, it was God who made millions of different types of food, millions of different types of drinks, and he gave us the taste buds to enjoy those. When we sit in a meal in our homes, think about it. What's the first thing we do? We stop and pray and give thanks. At least we should. It's normally what we do. And give thanks. Why? Because God gave us the food. God created it. He cares. We pray in our... We pray in that wonderful prayer. Give us this day. Our daily bread. And we're not talking about spiritual bread there. We're talking about physical bread, physical food. As Christians, we must not look at the physical blessings God has given us, whatever those blessings are, and treat them. If we are not thankful, we're treating those blessings with contempt. Let me ask you a question. Some of you have a real, <clears throat> real appreciation for art. Michelangelo. What if he had decided, you know, I'm going off to the convent and meditate. The fact that God made me one of the greatest artists that ever lived, that, that doesn't matter. I'm going off a minute. I'm going to feed myself spiritually. There was a, a young lady at Tate's Creek in Lexington when I was at 
Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. Her name was Kathleen. She was in high school. When she was in high school, she could paint like Michelangelo, and I'm not kidding. And I used to say to her, I, I saw her painting. You know, and I would say, what are you going to do with your life, Catherine? Kathleen? She said, I, I don't know. <laughs> I would look at her and just believe. I'd say, what do you mean you don't know? You know, and I said, okay, I'm going to back off. I said, just remember this. Whatever you do, whatever you choose to do, make sure you paint, period. I said, I can tell you on authority from God's word, he made you a painter. Today, she's one of the foremost painters in the world. She does paint. She's known worldwide. Remember Eric Little? He died as a martyr. He's a missionary. He's a great Olympic runner. He's from Scotland. He said when someone was challenging him, saying, shouldn't you be out serving God and not running in the Olympics? And what did he answer? God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You got it right. That's just good theology, folks. So as we look at this, it's not depreciating the physical. It's it's putting a biblical view on it. What happens if I say, you know what? I'm so in love with Christ, so in love with his word. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to eat anymore. I'm not going to pay any attention to my physical life. I'm just, you know, in fact, I'm not going to eat anymore. You all will be coming to see me and say, you got to eat, John. You're going to die. That's what happens when you don't eat. God, spiritual food, even when it is Christ and his word, will not keep me alive physically. God did not design it for that purpose. Physical food is God-given. It is necessary to physical life. Secondly, spiritual food is God-given and it's a necessity for spiritual life. Look at the end of verse 32. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God made us body and soul. God made us physical and spiritual creatures. And that changes everything. There's a question, one of several questions that I like to ask my secular friends, and I'll pass it on to you. I say to them, you know, in this life, when you have everything you want, when you've got the education you want, when you've got the wife or husband you want, when you have the job you want, when you have the money you want, when you have the car you want, how come you're still hungry for more? I've never had one say to me, I'm not. They know exactly what I'm saying. We hear it daily from the world. 
The Rolling Stones said it. Is this all there is? Is this all there is? From which does that question come? We're spiritual creatures. We have souls and we can saturate our bodies with all that the world will give us physically and it won't satisfy the soul. In the passage before us, Jesus is saying to the crowd, as much as you need physical food, you need spiritual food, just as you needed to nourish the body yesterday across the lake. You need to nourish your soul. Jesus was saying, what bread is to the body, I am to the soul. I'm the bread of life. Now, remember, the crowd did not seek Jesus out because they understood that. They sought him out again because he had fed them physically. It gave him free food. Look at verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Well, Jesus dodged that question, and he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that, oh, when you say truly, truly, it means one thing. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. I say to you, you are seeking me not because of signs. You should know from these signs that I'm God. That's what they're about. But you're not seeking me for that reason. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's what it says. Look at it. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'm the son of God. And all you want from me is to make you more bread. Give us more bread. And right then, think about it. Right then, Jesus said, all right, everybody sit down. We'll do it all over again. And you'll, maybe this time you'll get it right. Jesus didn't do that. That would not have fed their souls. Listen to me. Do you not see that this is exactly where our secular culture is? What has our culture come to do? This is the point to which we've arrived. The great spiritual effort of our materialistic secular culture has been to feed our souls on the physical. Just give me more money. That'll satisfy me. Just give me more wealth. Just give me that house. That'll satisfy me. Just give me that wife, that will satisfy me. Just give me that husband, that will satisfy me. Give, just give me a child, that will satisfy me. Just give me that job, that will satisfy me. And on and on and on. We try to feed our souls on the physical. You don't believe this? Go with me this afternoon. Let's go throughout Fayette County. You pick the houses. I'll knock on the door. Whoever comes to the door, we'll ask them one question. You can ask it. I'm here. I'm with you. You can say, I know you're not going to believe this, but see this man right here? His name is John Sartell, and he can give you anything you want. They'd be lying, but, you know, <laughs> he can give you anything you want. But you better be careful because you only get one wish. What do you want? What do you want? If you tell me anything except this answer, I will say, you are so naive. I've got this bridge down on the river, I want to say. But if you really understand this, you know the answer. They're going to say, well, I don't want to be greedy, but 
Five billion dollars would probably, they would, you know, the people that didn't understand might ask for a million, but they really understood. Five billion will do it. I think that'll fix it. Is that not true? And they were looking at Jesus, who was the God of heaven and earth. Just give us more bread, Jesus. And after you give us bread, go down to Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. That'll do it. Most of us in Fayette County would ask for $5 billion. And that's sad. That might take care of a few physical needs. But it would do nothing for our souls. Nothing. Physical food is God-given and is a necessity to physical life. Spiritual food is God-given and is a necessity to spiritual life. Thirdly, I want you to see that everyone has a spiritual need. But not everyone has spiritual hunger. Look at this crowd. What did they do the morning after the meal when they saw that Jesus was not there? They went to find him. Look at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they got to the other side, they were saying, they said, Jesus, how good it is to see you. We found you. This is wonderful. It's not that they just stumbled into it. They were looking for him. That sounds so right, doesn't it? But Jesus said, you're not really, you're not really spiritually hungry. You just want more bread. They weren't looking for a relationship with him. They weren't looking to converse with him, to live by his word. In fact, we're going to see something astounding in the rest of this chapter. These very people walked away from Jesus and didn't want anything to do with him. No, they weren't seeking Jesus because he was God, because he was the son of God. They didn't want to converse with him. They didn't want to follow his word. They weren't saying, we just want you. Not what you can do for us, Jesus. We don't want that. We just want you. Jesus was pointing out that they have a spiritual need. We all do. We're, we're spiritual people. We may be spiritually fallen. We may be sinners and need a Savior. But when we sinned, it did not destroy us, destroy the soul that God made. And soul became sinful inherently, innately. We need a relationship with the Creator. When John Calvin wrote his Institutes, the greatest theologians that ever lived, he wrote a tome called the, the Institutes of Christian Religion. When he wrote the Institute, you know what the first this volume, these volumes, brilliant. You know what the first point was? You can't know even who you are unless you first know who God is. When Jesus spoke of the living bread, they even said, Sir, give us this bread. We want it. But again, they were looking for some kind of physical bread. What did Jesus say to them? You don't get it. He said, Ah, it's me. I am the bread of life. 
who comes to me? He who believes in me? He who follows me? I'll satisfy his soul. People, this passage wore me out this week. I had to go looking at myself in the mirror over and over and over again. I had to ask myself, John, do you care as much about the physical, or excuse me, as much about the spiritual condition as your family as you care about the physical condition of your family? How would you answer that question? Do you care as much about the spiritual condition of your children as you do about their physical condition. One of our children gets really, 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 really sick. And life, physical life is in danger. We call each other, we call our Christian friends, we call the minister, we call the elders and say, pray. Happened this week several times with me. Pray. It wasn't children, but that's what we do if we have a sick child, isn't it? Are we that concerned that without Jesus Christ, that child of ours has a much more serious problem? Let me tell you, the spiritual death, you go into eternity without Jesus Christ. You want to send your child? You think it's, the spiritual food is just something you add on? Unless we have a pantry for our souls and our homes, we're going to send our children into eternity without Christ, without the bread of life. What happens when we get really sick or dying? When I was really sick with COVID, <laughs> surprising questions. I wanted to, when the doctor first asked me, I wanted to say, what'd you say? He said, how's your appetite? I was sick. I was really sick. There were a couple of evenings I didn't know I was going to make it. And I said, the doctor said, how's your appetite? And I said, Why? He said, because right now, if you don't eat what you should be eating, you don't drink what you should be drinking, you're going to die. I've seen it in hospital hundreds of times. The doctor turns to the family and says, Is, how's his appetite? Is he hungry? The doctor, we can't get him to eat a thing. He doesn't have an appetite. What happens? The person will likely die. Well, it's one thing when you 
or physically in that shape. It's quite another when you're spiritually in that shape. Read through scripture. Ahab and Jezebel had a spiritual need, but they didn't have a spiritual hunger. Pharaoh had a spiritual need, but he, didn't, he had no spiritual hunger. Herod had a spiritual need. You all do. He had a spiritual need. When Jesus stood before him, do you see a spiritual need? Do you, say, do you see a man say, you may be the son of God. Please talk to me. Herod laughed and said, do a miracle, Jesus. Do a miracle. He had no spiritual hunger. Pilate had no spiritual hunger. Where is our culture today? The spiritual need is there. It's always there. It'll be there a hundred years from now. But do you see any hunger for God? Hunger for Christ? There's a neo. In fact, it's going the opposite direction. There's a neo intolerance, a new hostility to Jesus, to God's word. Our country is every major institution in our country, including the church, is sprinting away from God's word. Sprinting away from the bread of life, sprinting away from Christ. Is there a spiritual need? More than ever. Is there a spiritual hunger? Less than ever. As you look at the world around you this week, ask this one question. Am I seeing any real spiritual hunger here? Am I seeing a hunger for Christ? A hunger for his word? And our country is not one of those countries that's been without God, that's been without Christ, that's been without God's word. Perhaps no other country in the history of the world has been more saturated with God's word than the United States. More churches built. What other country has built more churches inside of that country than the United States? But those buildings are being torn down. They're being turned into bed and breakfast inns, into boutiques. Why? Because there's no spiritual hunger. I don't know if you know where our country is today, but this is a biblical analysis. We have traded the true spiritual food for our souls, the food of Jesus. The food of his word, the food of his truth, the fruit of his gospel, the fruit of his spirit. We have traded that away. Just give me the wealth. Just give me the house. Just give me the education. Just give me this. Just give me that. One last thing. And this is terrifying. God does not leave his precious food on the table. He doesn't leave his precious blood to be mocked and scorned by the world, to be blasphemed in the churches that have left the faith. We read it this morning in Amos. Go back to it. Go back to it right now. Look on your scripture sheet. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
They will wander from sea to sea. From northeast they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Here's the irony. In God's word, what was the one sign of God's judgment all through the Old Testament? Famine, physical famine. You bring in the idols, I'm taking away the food. I'm taking away the crops. Well, here in Amos, God says, there is a greater famine. There's a greater famine, a famine of God's word. I'll take away the word. I'll remove the gospel. I'll remove the truth. I'll remove the bread of life. Folks, our country will not be destroyed by physical famine. Oh, physical famine may come. But the cause of death will be a spiritual famine. God gave us a feast. He gave us as a people a feast in his word, in his truth, a feast in Christ, a feast in grace. He gave us a feast in his church. He gave us a feast in worship and prayer, a spiritual feast beyond imagination. And we, our culture, is feeding its soul on the slop of the world. The spiritual need will remain. But there's no hunger, not in the present generation. And if it's there, it's a dying hunger. And God will take away the manna. And he'll take away Jesus. And the next generation will travel the land and not find him. In most of our homes, we have a pantry where a supply of our physical food is kept. You know, I love it when weather report comes in the wintertime. There's a possibility, 30% possibility of snow. And Kroger is overrun. And I want to look at this when I see all those people and say, don't you guys have a pantry? Don't you keep stuff? I have a pantry, shelves of food. I don't need to run to Kroger. And, you know, your refrigerator. It's a pantry. Your freezer, it's a pantry. I've got a refrigerator, I've got a freezer. I've got three pantries. It's not wise to be without these. The question before us, do you have a pantry for your souls? A pantry of food and bread and wine for your souls. We'll spiritually die without it. I'm not speaking about the Lord's table. There's a great debate in, in, in the church about this passage. Some theologians say, well, he's... Talking about the Lord's table here. And the other ones will say, no, he's not talking about the Lord's table. He's talking about Jesus being the bread of life in every part of life. Every part of life we feed on Jesus. Both are true. He's talking about both. That pantry, the pantry, will contain God's word. That pantry will contain the gospel. That pantry will contain prayer and worship. That pantry will contain Jesus in every aspect of his person and work. There's got to be such a pantry in your home. And Christ Presbyterian has to be that pantry for Fayette County. God help us if we're not. Amen. Our hymn is most appropriate. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my